Hi, this is Gordon Russell, host of The Neutral Ground, the New Orleans Advocate's weekly podcast on the stories behind some of the stories that are making waves in South Louisiana this week. Thanks to our sponsors, Gardner Realtors, and thank you for joining us. This week, I'll be talking with reporter John Zimmerman about Louisiana's unusual law allowing for non-unanimous jury verdicts in felony cases, and also about the November 6th ballot measure that will allow Louisianans a chance for the first time ever to vote on this practice. Next, I'll be talking with Della Hassell about two chemicals that are manufactured in the river parishes that have stoked new fears out there. And last, I'll check in with Ian McNulty about the loss of a cherished bakery and what it means for one of New Orleans' signature sandwiches. Thanks for joining us. First up is John Zimmerman, a special projects reporter with The Advocate. John, let's talk about this unusual measure that's on the uh, November 6th ballot uh, regarding unanimous juries. What's, what's this all about? Well, Louisiana is one of only two states uh, that operates under what we call split verdict rules. It means in felony cases, serious felony cases, juries uh, don't need to be unanimous. They can return verdicts of guilt or acquittal uh, on the votes of as few as 10 of 12 jurors. Uh, Oregon is the other state uh, that allows them. Louisiana was the first. Uh, And voters are going to have a chance on November 6th in Amendment 2 to decide whether, after more than 120 years of uh, this system, uh, they want to keep it that way or return to how 48 other states do it and the federal court system. And how Louisiana used to do it for the first, what, 70 or so years of its existence. That's right. Okay. Now, John, we've spilled a lot of ink on this topic uh, over the last year. Um, maybe you can walk us through a little bit about you know what what we researched and what some of our findings were. Sure. Well, this law has been uh, challenged over and over again. Uh, it's it's quite controversial, uh, obviously, particularly among defense advocates. Uh, uh, but we wanted to really look at just the impact of the law in Louisiana. Nobody really had ever taking a kind of full look at, at how the law affects the justice system, affects incarceration in Louisiana. So we gathered a whole lot of data on trials uh, and uh, juries for those trials and uh, came uh, to crunch those numbers and, and, and found that some of the some interesting sort of side effects of the law, uh, one, we found that it's really common. 40% of 12-member jury trials uh, end with a conviction uh, or acquittal based on a, non, a non-unanimous decision. Usually um, a conviction, right? Usually a conviction, most often a conviction. Um, also, uh, black defendants are 30% more likely than white defendants to be convicted by those non-unanimous juries. And then one of the things that we found looking a little closer at a smaller subset of convictions in which we knew how the individual jurors voted was that black jurors are more likely than white voters, jurors, pardon me, by a significant margin to dissent from uh, the majority that convicts a defendant. Right. And in some cases, we found by interviewing these jurors that that those jurors didn't necessarily think that the person should be acquitted, but maybe they thought that a a lesser verdict was in order and, and suggesting maybe that some of these people would have faced less stiff punishment under a unanimous uh, 
verdict scheme. That's right. And I should mention as well that uh, what voters uh, have in front of them in, in November affects trials for crimes that are committed in the future uh, after January 1st of 2019. Not retroactive. In so other words. all of these people who are behind bars uh, in prison on non-unanimous convictions uh, would have to seek a different kind of route to, to challenge their convictions. And you talked a little bit about the racial implications of this. Um, this law has its history, has its roots in uh, in kind of a racist constitutional convention. Maybe you can talk a little bit about how that started. Yeah, the eighteen ninety eight constitutional convention uh, was uh, pulled together by uh, white Democrats with a specific purpose, uh, as they stated, of uh, re- uh, reasserting the supremacy of the white race in Louisiana. Their main goal for that convention was to disenfranchise black voters who had become uh, a big part of, of the voting population in Louisiana, just about half. They succeeded in doing that. And then one of the other things they did in this process was uh, to look at the justice system and enshrine this law that allowed at the time 9-3 verdicts for conviction or acquittal. And there was no explicit racial aspect to the jury part of this, but there was obviously a close connection between jury service and being an eligible voter. And this was a way to maybe ensure that if a few black people were able to get onto a jury, that they, they their voices wouldn't matter. Well, the delegates at that time knew, uh, because the U.S. Supreme Court had said so, that, that they couldn't rid juries of black faces entirely. Uh, so, uh, you know, they did what they could to, within constitutional limits, uh, try to restrict the, the voices of black jurors. And this law, of course, was updated in the 1970s to change the 9-3 scheme to a 10-2 scheme, but uh, otherwise remained intact. Correct. There was a constitutional convention in 1973. That's the, the, the Louisiana Constitution that is in place today, where they went back and they, they didn't really look at the origins of the law, but they said, well, uh, let's take it from 9-3 to 10-2. This came a year after, actually, the U.S. Supreme Court said in cases from both Louisiana and Oregon that federal courts had to be unanimous, but that states essentially could, could tinker with their rules. So this is on the ballot because of legislative action this year. The legislature had to approve this in order, or had to approve a referendum for, for it to get on the ballot. How did that happen, and how surprising was that? Well, I think it was surprising to everybody, including the author of the bill, J.P. Morrell, a, a Senate Democrat from New Orleans. I think uh, he had thrown it up there as kind of what he called a conversation starter. Uh, didn't wasn't expected to really gain any traction, but but it did. And over the course of several hearings, it, it seemed to gain more and uh, across the political spectrum. It wasn't just. You know, uh, liberal Democrats. It was a lot of people, uh, a lot of conservative groups, and the Republican Party now has endorsed the measure, and as is the Democratic Party. So it really developed this kind of life of its own, and, and it ended up passing through the House, uh, you know, to get the, you know, easily exceeding the, mm-hmm. the two-thirds requirement. A rare show of bipartisanship in a legislature that can't agree on too much. I think everybody was happy to get something <laughs> done, yeah. So looking ahead, what are the politics um, in this election? I mean, you've got, you've got both major parties endorsing this, and you've got some very conservative groups, as you mentioned. You know, the, the Koch brothers are, are putting some money into this. Uh, 
you got the Louisiana Family Forum, and then you've got a coalition of liberal groups. What, what's who's putting money into this, and is anyone against it? Well, uh, formally, there's no campaign that seems to have mobilized against it. Uh, Attorney General Jeff Landry uh, has come out in, in opposition to it. Uh, all of these sort of campaigning thus far has been on the on the pro side. I mean, you've got kind of these different um, political, uh, you know, slices going after, you know, their chronic voters, the people who always come out. Nobody's expecting a, a big turnout for this election. There's not a lot of hot races on the ballot. So uh, is, really any, is anyone against it? Uh, other than Landry? <laughs> well, the DAs have not said one way or the other. You know, the individual DAs, none of them have come out pro or con um, really, you know, in a public way yet. I mean, they may do that in isolated instances in their own parishes or whatnot. But so far, you haven't seen a no on two campaign. No organized campaign. That all said, uh, the people who are supporting this are not exactly overconfident they expect at best a narrow victory wouldn't you say that's what we're we're hearing is that you know they don't expect you know if if it passes anything more than a 55 percent passage uh, a lot of people don't really understand uh what the law is they're sort of internal polling they're saying is sort of that if people learn about it then they tend to agree with it, but that but there's a huge swath of the population in Louisiana that that really doesn't know that this law is a thing, and a lot of suspicion about constitutional amendments generally. That's right. I think there are a lot of people who who will just click down no uh, down the ballot. All right. Well, thanks a lot for joining us today, John. Thanks Appreciate for it. having me. All right. Next up, we're going to talk to Della Hassell, who has been covering the river par- parishes and the environment for the Advocate. Um, Della, there's always reasons to be concerned about uh, pollution and the environment, especially out in the river parishes. Uh, You recently wrote a story about a new concern out there. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So the new concern is over a chemical called ethylene oxide, which has been produced in river parishes, specifically in St. Charles Parish, since the 1960s. And uh, what what do they use this stuff for? Ethylene oxide is used in the production of other chemicals. It's used in the production of making um, polyester and antifreeze, and it's also used to fumigate spices and in the sterilization of medical equipment. Interesting. So what what happened here wasn't that this is this is not a new thing out in St. Charles Parish, but the new thing is that they the government recently decided that this is a carcinogen, as in something that causes cancer, right? Right. So the EPA reclassified this chemical in 2016, and they said that it was a carcinogen at that point. And so what flows from that is that there, there are acceptable and unacceptable levels of this stuff. And we, we ran a map with your story that showed some pretty high levels of this uh, in certain census tracts out there. What did the map show? Well, in the map, you can see that in some areas, the risk is much higher than both the national average and much higher than what the EPA considers to be the upper limit of what's acceptable. So um, so what the EPA considers to be the upper limit of what's acceptable is 100 in a million. 100. So in other words, 100 
an average of 100 people out of 1 million people would develop cancer from exposure to this at this level. It would be likely that about 100 people out of every million would develop cancer. Okay, and that's over a lifetime, in other words. That's over a lifetime, uh, which is the EPA measures as 70 years, and it would be constant exposure. At that level. At that level. So basically 24 hours a day. Every day, 70 years. So that's the upper limit of what the EPA considers acceptable. What what did they find in the worst, sort of most dangerous or most polluted uh, census tract in St. Charles? Well, in census tract 601, which is in St. Charles Parish, they found that uh, about 710 people for every million would be likely to develop cancer um, as a result of exposure to this chemical. So that's seven times what the government sees as the upper limit of what's reasonable, but about 700 times what they see as like an optimal level. Is that right? Right. So the goal is uh, one in a million, which is pretty negligible right. um, in terms of science. Right. And this works out to more like close to one in a thousand people in this census tract would theoretically develop cancer as a result of this exposure over a lifetime. Right. And it's not just that census tract. I mean, census tracts around the rest of the parish and in St. John Parish, too, are showing, you know, levels in 300 or so in a million, which is also higher than what's... Well above what's deemed acceptable. Right. And this the, the, the census tract that has the highest level, again, is across the river. The, the plant is in Hanville, right? Right. So there's a plant called Union Carbide Corporation in Hanville, and uh, that plant is has been producing ethylene oxide since the 1960s. And um, right across the river is where Census Tract 601 is, and that's where the greatest risk is in the nation. Okay. And, and we should know, too, that this stuff is produced uh, up and down the river, up towards Baton Rouge as well, although the, I think we found that the, the worst specific problems were in St. Charles Parish. Is that right? Right. So there are 10 uh, companies that are producing this between New Orleans and Baton Rouge, that industrial corridor, and more than a dozen uh, in Louisiana overall. Okay. And this news, uh, this sort of discouraging news about this new chemical, or not new chemical, the new classification of this chemical comes on the heels of some similar news about another chemical made up in the river parishes called chloroprene. Um, tell us a little bit about that and what happened with chloroprene in the last couple of years. Sure. So chloroprene has been produced um, at a company called Dinka Performance Elastomer, which is in St. John the Baptist Parish in Laplace. Um, and they've been producing, that plant has been producing chloroprene for about 50 years. But again, um, over time, the EPA has reclassified that chemical and decided that it's more dangerous than they once thought. Uh, that chemical is considered now to be a likely carcinogen. Okay, so not for sure, but the way these things go, sometimes this is a step along the way into something being classified as a carcinogen oftentimes. That can happen, yes. Yeah. And this, and what's this stuff, what's this chloroprene used for? Chloroprene is used to make another chemical called neoprene or a product called neoprene. And when you think neoprene, you think a rubber-like substance that's waterproof. So neoprene is used in wetsuits. It's used in orthopedic braces. It's used in uh, pool tables, all kinds of stuff. Okay. And so this company, Denka, that makes the chloroprene, um, what? so they're, they're not under any 
actual order from the government to reduce their output of this stuff at this point, right? Because it has not been declared a an actual carcinogen, but the carcinogen, but they're under pressure to do something about it, right? Right. So the the actual limit of what they're allowed to produce is still um, considerably high given its classification. It's just because these things take time. Um, it it will require an amendment of the Clean Air Act to make the actual limit lower. However, that being said, the plant did sign a consent agreement with the government, and in that consent agreement, they voluntarily agreed to reduce emissions at their plant by 85%. And even if they do that, would that bring this to an acceptable or a safe level, or is that still under debate? Environmentalists and residents in the area say no. They say that um, even an 85% reduction doesn't get anywhere close to what's safe. Uh, so they're at public meetings throughout St. St. Uh, John Parish. Residents can be seen sometimes wearing red shirts saying only 0.2 will do. And so that's sort of the magic number that the EPA has, has deemed what would be acceptable exposures, 0.2 micrograms per cubic meter. Which is probably pretty hard to picture, but just to give us an idea of uh, this 85%, if they reduce the emissions by 85%, will they reach that threshold or will they? No. And the plant has said that the 85% reduction won't result in reaching that level either. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about, you mentioned these residents with their red shirts and all. What, where? How do people feel out there right now? Do they feel like the government is protecting them or do they feel frustrated with the government or do they feel some combination of those things? Most residents that I have come across in my reporting are very angry, they're very scared, and they're extremely upset. Um, they're angry at the government. They don't feel that the local uh, local government officials or the state Department of Environmental Quality are protecting their interests or their health. They are scared that they're suffering. Um, well, they are suffering health problems, and they're scared that those health problems are because of chemical exposure. And they're frustrated because they don't see change happening quickly enough. All right. Well, uh, thanks a lot for joining us today, Della. Thanks for having me. Last, we're going to talk to Ian McNulty, who covers food and restaurants for The Advocate. Um, Ian, the, the po' boy sandwich is kind of fundamental to New Orleans food. It's one of our most famous indigenous uh, foods here. And, and recently there's been some, there's one development in particular that uh, is a little bit worrisome for the future of the po' boy. Can you tell us what that was? Yeah, well, over the summer, you know, we got some reports that maybe Binder Bakery, Alois J. Binder Bakery, was on the ropes. And then in early September, abruptly, the bakery shut down. Um, now, we don't know what the future is for the bakery just yet. It's an old family business, but we know that it abruptly ceased production, deliveries to restaurants and groceries stopped. And that uh, that caused us to look at, like, okay, well, where does this industry stand? Uh, you know, you, you take one part away and you realize... Maybe something that uh, is widespread around New Orleans is really kind of resting on a narrower base. We're talking about po'boys that are, as you said, a staple of New Orleans cuisine. They're synonymous with New Orleans. They don't really make them anywhere else. 
And what makes the po' boy? The bread. So Right, you don't always think about it. You think about where you get your favorite po' boy from. You don't necessarily think about where your favorite po' boy's bread comes from. But now we're down to how many bakeries are still making this stuff. Really, when you're talking about traditional New Orleans po' boy bread, uh, your options are down to two. Uh, Leidenheimer Baking Company and the John Genduza Bakery. To talk to both of those bakeries for the story. Now, there are others out there around New Orleans that are making bread more or less in the traditional style, but to really be a viable provider for po'boy shops and restaurants, they need someone who's going to deliver the bread every day, deliver it to their back door, uh, to have the infrastructure, the truck drivers, to have the know-how, the history of doing all this. It's a lot that goes into it, so it's not like... It's not like the cavalry is going to come uh, immediately to fill this market gap. New Orleans, I should say, has seen a boom in bakeries. We, we've had uh, a lot of new bakeries open up in the last few years, but they're a very different style. These are the artisan bakeries. They're right. this old world character, whereas the New Orleans po'boy loaf is a New Orleans character. It's a very only very New Orleans thing. Very specific thing, yeah. Yeah, and you know, some bakers will tell you it's it's... You know, it's a product of the industrial age. It's not the thing that uh, that modern artisan bakers want to pursue, but it is the thing that's fundamental to the po' boy. Right. This is not a bread that you're gonna, you know, is gonna is gonna be great in a in an artisan bread basket, but it it's what it's makes humble the in a way, but it's yeah. but it's but it's sort of a, a really necessary part of the po' boy sandwich. The specific texture, the way it holds up to the fillings. I mean, all this is is what differentiates a po' boy from any other kind of sandwich with the same fillings. I think you quoted a po' boy uh, shop proprietor in your story saying, the bread to us is the stage. That's right. Yeah, it's a great quote. Everything it's, performs on that stage. It's the, yeah, it's the guy from Mahoney's Po' Boys, one of the, a po' boy shop that just expanded. And they, they actually take really good care of their bread. Uh, this is one of the points in the story. They, they built this vault <laughs> at the restaurant where all the bread from Leidenheimer goes immediately into this vault where they control the humidity and the temperature because this is um, famously temperamental bread. Yeah, it doesn't last long. Right, yeah. It's great the day of and by sometimes even later that day, yeah. not so good. <laughs> and then the next day, it's only good for bread pudding and breadcrumbs and making your meatballs right, and right. stuff like that. And so that's, again, another one of these things that makes it very local. This is not something that is easy to ship, that you can just produce in mass quantities and truck over to another city. And it's one of those things that makes it such a craving in New Orleans. I mean, New Orleans people who have gone elsewhere, you know, tried to find good po' boys, they can't. Yeah. <laughs> people try to replicate it in other cities, they can't. It's something very specific about... And one of the things is that bread. Right. It's New Orleans and the people who, who make it and yeah. the sort of the ecosystem of shops and restaurants that support it. So with Binder shutting down, it really shed a light on, okay, well, where does this all stand? And it was, I think it was pretty surprising for people to see how 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 much uh, the the base of that skill of this uh, for this local product had winnowed down over the years. So two primary many. two primary bakers left: Gendusa right. in Gentilly and uh, and Leidenheimer in Central City. And Leidenheimer should say has done a good job of. Um, they keep some other brands in circulation. One of their former competitors, Reasons Bakery, uh, they bought it in the 90s. That They still distribute that bread using their recipe, using their label. It's still on the shelf. But it's sort of under the umbrella of Leidenheimer's. Yeah. And so it, this brought up the question that some people have asked is, well, if it's down to two, what happens? I mean, this it's, you know, anything can happen in the business world. You know, bakeries, we've seen some, some businesses go away after fires, after family disputes. I mean, there's a lot, uh, there's a, a lot can happen in the business world. 
And in this case, this business intersects with a part of the culture of New Orleans. It's food culture. Um, so definitely a lot of food for thought there on, on kind of where, where this uh, where this leaves us. Well, uh, Ian, do you think this says something about the future or the present of the po' boy sandwich? I mean, is this is there a connection between? I mean, we've seen a restaurant explosion in New Orleans and and lots of less traditional kinds of cuisine becoming popular here. Everything from all kinds of ethnic food to just American food like hamburgers and this sort of thing. And perhaps the po' boy isn't quite as prominent in sort of the firmament of New Orleans cuisine as it once was. What what do you do? You think that this means that there's a that the po' boy is in some peril well you're definitely onto something there gordon i mean the the if you're opening up an italian restaurant in new orleans the you know the the, the new orleans po' boy bread probably won't fit with that the sushi restaurant has no use for it uh, you know your middle eastern restaurant has their pita the, the restaurants that use new orleans po' boy bread are specifically new orleans style restaurants po' boy shops of course creole italian restaurants the old french creole restaurants and yeah, those are not trends that are that are going. They're spiking upwards, you know. But it is one of those times where people um, sometimes a story like this gives people a glimpse into what just what they value, you know, how much they do love these things that they may have taken for granted. And you know, sometimes a close call can spark a renaissance. I mean, we saw that in a lot of ways after Hurricane Katrina, when everything yeah. was sort of a dead stop, and then people came back to things that that really spoke to them about New Orleans. I know that in the course of reporting this story, I ate a lot of poke boys. <laughs> I'm not complaining. It's just part of the job, people. It's fine. Uh, taking one for the team. It really was, yeah. But it really, it, in the course of reporting it, it did sort of reconnect me with, like, yeah, what what am I tasting here? Why is this different? Why is this distinctive and valuable? And, uh, you know, I've heard from people in, in, since we've put that story out who... Uh, it was an eye opener for them, and you know one of the things they do is go out and have a po' boy and bite yeah. into it again. Yeah, it is a reminder to go visit your favorite po' boy shop. Which let, let's close on that note. What's your where's your where's your one go to po' boy shop? One like, meal left. I like so many of them, but I, for me, it's an easy answer. It's Parkway, simply because it's my wife's favorite. So oh, when, very when I go there, the, the entire team is happy. Right. We actually have yes, we have a lot of memories there, so that that seals the deal for me. Well, I'm a guy's guy, but uh, <laughs> also very. Good. I also enjoy Parkway. Well, thanks for joining us today, and appreciate it very much. Okay, thanks, Gordon. All right. The Neutral Ground is brought to you by Gardner Realtors, with music provided by David Bodie. We welcome your feedback and your ideas for future shows. Email me at grussell, with two S's and two L's, at theadvocate.com, or call me at 504-636-7437. Hope to see you next week.